Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. Uh, I'm Matt Risby. Uh, good evening. Uh, and joining me as always uh, via the miracle of satellite technology is the girl with the dragon tattoo. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Good, yeah. I'm just hacking into your computer now and just, you know, <laughs> mucking around with your files. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, and uh, yeah, don't take any kind of butt plug uh, related revenge on me because that would be <laughs> terrible. Um, what have you been up to this week, Ed? Uh, I have been working slightly more human hours than I have recently, mm. which has been nice now that uh, now that the game is out in the world uh, and they don't require me to work super long days. It's been nice. Uh, I, today, it being uh, Labor Day weekend, I decided to take in a film and I went to go and watch uh, Straight Outta Compton. Did you ask for your ticket? Did you say Straight Outta Compton or did you say Straight Out of Compton? Uh, I said Straight Outta. If I oh. was... Uh, if I was in England, I think I probably would have insisted on saying straight out of Compton, please. Mm. But uh, over here, I felt I ne- needed to use the local vernacular. Mm. How was it? Uh, it was really good. It was really, really strong. Uh, I think, uh, I'm not the first person to say this, but I think the first hour and a half of it is its strongest because it's kind of, for the first hour and a half, it's slightly, it's almost impressionistic. It's this kind of heady uh, recreation of what life in Compton was like in the late 80s early 90s and it it kind of shows these little snapshots of the experience of being a young black male in in los angeles at that time and the police harassment and brutality and things like that and then after the the straight out of compton tour happens and the nwa starts to fall apart it kind of becomes a little more of a standard uh, movie biopic and you start to notice kind of little shitty cliched things creep in a bit more like um, Mm. there's a scene where uh, they show Ice Cube, played by his son o- O'Shea Jackson Jr., typing away an old school map, a Mac, and his wife walks in and he says, "Hey, how's Friday going?" And he's going, hmm. "Going, oh, it's going really good." And it's just like it's, it's. They start doing these things where they just drop little references that have no bearing on the plot, just to kind of act as little signifiers. And like, I'm, I'm sure a conversation like that might have happened in ice cubes life but it just feels like such a, a lazy reference to drop in um but mm. i'd say the first hour and a half is is really really great and the last hour is merely quite good mm, okay is there any point at which someone says to easy e you should really get that like cough checked out and then you know he doesn't he ignores it and then he just dies not quite that but people like a constant are not constantly but paul giamatti does say to him a few times that he needs to start using a rubber and things like that uh, yeah, so there's yeah. there's little nods to what's going to happen, um, mm. but it's not it's not too overbearing, uh, and the, mm. the casting all round is pretty good. The only thing that I because in that they they get a lot of people who look a lot like the real life people, like the guy they got to play uh, Suge Knight is believably intimidating and scary, which helps. Uh, but the the guy they get to play Snoop Dogg looks and sounds nothing like Snoop Dogg. And when he shows up, Suge Knight just kind of says, who the fuck is this guy? And I was like, I'm thinking exactly the same thing, because I have no mm. idea who this guy is meant to be. So it wasn't Paul Giamatti playing Snoop Dogg? No, but I think he would have at least put a little more effort into trying to get the accent right. Right. Okay. Okay. No diggity. 
Uh, that's that's probably the wrong. That's New Jack Swing. That's not <laughs> anything to do with uh, gangster rap. I had uh, a film experience this week that I wanted to talk about on this podcast, um, uh, and I kind of almost wanted to share it with the listeners and you, Ed, to kind of almost validate my own experience because uh, I can't quite comprehend that this actually happened. Um, I watched a film. Um, that we talked about very, very briefly, I think, on a preview episode, um, when I said, oh, this sounds exciting, and then you said, no, it's supposed to be terrible, and then we just moved on. Um, a film called Are You Here, um, which uh, you probably haven't heard about at home, because um, no one really did hear about it, because it kind of disappeared without a trace for, for pretty decent reason. But if I told you, and this is the reason that we talked about it on the preview episode uh, probably a year or maybe two years ago was that if I told you that Matthew Weiner he who created and show ran uh, Mad Men uh, for seven uh, wonderful seasons of kind of thrilling and uh, hugely absorbing intelligent fascinating drama with uh, kind of depth and, and detail kind of beyond a lot of what we're seeing on our screens at this time uh, was had written and directed a film starring Owen Wilson uh, and Zach Galifianakis and Amy Poehler, uh, you'd be like, oh, that sounds interesting. I'd probably go and see that, or I'd kind of at least check it out, because I like all those people. But the results of that kind of mix, that experiment, are not just kind of patchy or kind of inconsistent. They are absolutely fucking terrible. And I just, I, I kind of watched it, and I just couldn't quite believe that the assembled pool of talent couldn't have done anything better even by accident just by being talented and being in the same room but instead what we got is um a setup and story that we've kind of uh, seen a billion times before um which is a dysfunctional family are brought together when a relation dies and they have to kind of figure out their issues and sort it out which is you know a pretty tired trope um we get that and then we get that kind of story that's been told a million times before but told really badly uh with like literally every single scene is really flat boring exchange between characters who don't really un just kind of understand or know where the scene is going or what the point is and the actors seem to be really struggling to get any kind of like traction out of the script or any kind of drama out of anything and it's like no one behind the camera seems to care or give a shit no one even seems to think oh let's just move this camera a bit that might bring a little bit of life into it but no it's almost like they just turned the camera on and went for lunch and then just kind of filmed a boring conversation between actors in between takes it's just somehow inexplicably the least engaging film I think I've seen in like years It's like, and I need other people to see it <laughs> just to be like why why how did that even happen I like I mean I know that films cost a lot of money and I know that like they put them out even if they're kind of disappointing but if I saw that as a studio executive I'd just be like no no let's just not bother because it's not even like wretchedly bad it's just it's just it's just a nothing it's just a kind of an almost an anti film it sounds like it's going to be your version of the ring which is kind of, yeah. you see it and within seven days you have to show it to someone and then nothing bad happens to you but you just become the guy who watched what is it called mm. we are here are you here are you here it's like it's there's so there's so many fucking titles like that at the moment it's like that zach brath's one wish, wish you were here wish you wish i were wish here. i was here yeah so like there's all these ones just have really generic titles 
Uh, but your description makes it sound like an even less successful version of This Is Where I Leave You, which, mm. in all honesty, is hard to comprehend. Yeah, I mean, This Is Where I Leave You, it has a lot of parallels with that, because that's also a kind of indie film in which uh, a supremely talented cast are brought together for the death of a family member, and they're kind of a dysfunctional family, and they kind of have to figure themselves out, like, using this tragedy as a backdrop. And if I told you a film starring Jason Bateman, Tina Fey, Adam Driver and Jane Fonda was going to come out, you'd be, oh, I want to see that. But actually, it's really turgid shit. And yeah, this is the same. I don't know whether, like, this is just a thing going around. Oh, this must be a bug going around or something in Hollywood. Um, The August Osage County bug. Absolutely. But yeah, kind of Matthew Weiner is just like, I can't quite comprehend how you go from Mad Men to that. I don't get it. I mean, there is kind of a little bit of a parallel between uh, the David Chase film, was it? Not Fade Away? Yeah, Um, and also the guy who created 60 Under, who had that film uh, Baghead, I think it was called, or Towelhead. Uh, He he had one which came out just after that finished. Alan Ball, that's his name. Alan Alan Ball, yeah. Yeah, that came out after Six Feet Under ended and before True Blood started. And that was a, that was another case where it it kind of came out and there was a bit of there was a bit of fanfare leading up to it because obviously it was a guy who created this hugely acclaimed TV show who was moving into directing films and then nothing nothing happened with it at all. Hmm. You're not thinking of Jarhead, are you? No, I'm not. No, that's uh, there's a connection there obviously because it's Sam Mendes, but there was definitely a oh, okay. film he did which was about I believe a uh, a young Muslim teenager who moved into like a kind of very uh, conservative suburb. Well, okay, I think we should because the thing is, I haven't heard of that in the way that most of the audience haven't heard of "Are You Here" or "Not Fade Away." I think we should perhaps start a kind of a data bank of kind of middling films made by supremely talented showrunners <laughs> because it's you know it's stacking up now. Yeah, I think I wonder what the the, the pick of that crop would be. Probably be Hancock because that was written written by Vince Gilligan. Was it that? That's the pick of the litter. Jesus. Probably, because it's like the one that's at least kind of interesting and deeply flawed and compromised, but has kind of like some interesting ideas in there. Mm. And I'd hate to be the person who says, oh, maybe they should just stay on fucking television. But, you know, I know it's a small uh, sample size. This uh, this experiment is not reaping excellent results thus far. Mm-hmm. So that was what we've been doing this week. Uh, in the news this week, um, Anthony Horowitz, uh, the author of some James Bond books, not the James Bond books, but some James Bond books, um, has got himself into hot water by suggesting that Idris Elba is too street, that's a quote, too street to play James Bond, which the internet has taken to mean too black. Yeah, and like I, I think I don't necessarily think he meant that because he did immediately suggest another black actor who could play it. He play suggested Ice uh, Cube. No, <laughs> he, he suggested uh, the I think the guy from Hustle. One oh, Adrian Lester. Yeah, Adrian Lester. I knew it was Lester yeah. something, but I was like, mm. no, not Lester Freeman. He's not real. Um, no. <laughs> no, but yeah, Adrian Lester. He kind of suggested, but it definitely was uh, an incredibly loaded choice of words to suggest that he was uh, too street. And I think what he was suggesting was that his past roles like stuff like uh, Luther, you know, he's meant to be uh, just kind of, he's it's not kind of suave in the way that James Bond is, it's more of a bruiser sort of thing. Mm. Uh, but like, if anyone has ever seen an interview with uh, Idris Elba knows or seen most of his work, they'll know that he's incredibly smooth. Like mm. the scene in The Wire where he... Uh, 
romances uh, D'Angelo Barksdale's uh, girlfriend, he is like the smoothest guy alive. <laughs> so I think he definitely has that in him. Mm. But and also, what I don't understand is surely Anthony Horowitz understands that like it's acting, right? Mm. <laughs> that like actors can do other things. Yeah, it's not like you know, oh, Anthony Hopkins couldn't play couldn't play King Lear. He'd just play it behind a plane at pane of glass and talking about fava beans. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because he, he's that limited. Yeah, um, yeah. So that was a bit kind of off-putting. Um, and I really hope Idris Elba gets the part of James Blonde and plays it like wearing big baggy jeans and a kind of back, <laughs> backwards baseball cap. <laughs> See, that's my definition of street, Ed. As Eggsy from Kingsman. It's kind of Poochie the dog from uh, the <laughs> Simpsons episode. Yeah, anyway, the other bit of news that caught my eye this week, it's been a relatively slow news week if you exclude the stuff that we're going to talk about as our main topic tonight. Um, but the thing that caught my eye is a bit of casting news, uh, which has kind of got me very excited, is that Josh Gad is going to pay uh, Roger Ebert in a film about Russ Mayer and Roger Ebert's um, time together writing and making Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And Russ Mayer is going to be played by Will Ferrell, which is an amazing casting kind of in the fact that he resembles him like quite a lot. Like, you know, Will Ferrell obviously looks like the drummer from Red Hot Chili Peppers, mm-hmm. like a lot. But he looks a lot like Russ Mayer as well when he has a moustache. And I think that that as a pairing has actually got potential to be very funny. But then it will probably end up being something like Get Hard, which is, you know, one of the worst films I've seen in 10 years. Yeah, it's the sort of thing where you think physically those two guys are a perfect choice. But if the writing isn't there or if they try and make it too, I don't know, broad, because that Mm. is a story with, I'm going to say, a pretty limited, a pretty limited audience. You know, it's not exactly a kind of a big mainstream story. So as long as they get the specifics right, it could be really good with those two actors. But depending on the people behind it, you get a sense that they're just going to play this up for the kind of the big ludicrousness of it all. It'll become a little bit strained and boring. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope, yeah, I hope they do kind of keep it within the realms of what actually happened, but kind of do it in a style that is kind of interesting enough to kind of set it out from it's like you say rather narrow kind of source material um do you know who's behind it uh no i can look that up but i think one of the things that i think would be interesting is if they tried to do it in the style of a russ meyer film Mm. like if they tried to ape the uh the heightened and kind of uh campiness and campiness of it i think that there could be a lot of potential there but if they just kind of make it a fairly either if they only go like halfway with it then there's a good chance that it could end up being really kind of a missed opportunity. Mm, yeah, there's a missed opportunity not to shoot. Oh, Michael Winterbottom's behind it. I am on board with this film. Uh, yeah, but... Michael Michael Winterbottom is someone who is like consistently interesting um, and can pretty much do every genre. He's a genre spanner, they mm-hmm. call him. You know, so yeah, I'm fascinated. I'm on board already. My ticket's bought. Yeah, if if he uh, if it becomes the American 24-hour party people. Uh, I'll be very good, particularly if it ends with kind of an angelic form of uh, Roger Ebert showing up and saying, "You really should have given Blue Velvet a good review." Mm, yeah, um, I'd like. I've got a suggested title. Thanks for the memories. Nice. <laughs> yeah, you can, they can have that one for free, Hollywood. Uh, yeah, it's, Breast it's in going. Show. Breast in Show, also good. Uh, knockers on Heaven's Door. Was. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, anyway, we'll get distracted. This is like a fucking carry-on film. This is terrible. But yeah, finally in the news, sad. 
uh, news is that Wes Craven passed away, which was you know kind of the the outpouring of kind of affection and stuff for his films on on social media has been uh, lovely and um, kind of personally for me, uh, I kind of enjoyed a lot of his films and uh, Scream uh, was the first eighteen film I saw illicitly at the cinema, aged fifteen. Um, and uh, I still hold that film up as a as a kind of a masterpiece, a modern horror masterpiece. But uh, like a lot of those kind of genre filmmakers, uh, you don't become a good genre filmmaker by not being a good filmmaker. And the guy knew how to make a fucking movie. Yeah, as as demonstrated by his uh, one of his what ended up being one of his last films because he didn't work that often in the last kind of decade of his life. Uh, Red Eye, which is mm. kind of an immaculately realised uh, Hitchcockian thriller. Which was slightly under undermined by its own trailer, because uh, I don't know if you remember the trailer for Red Eye, but it starts off making it look like it's going to be a romantic comedy about a couple who meet on an airplane, and then like a minute in, suddenly it becomes apparent that actually the guy on an airplane is uh, an incredibly dangerous threat to the to the girl. And mm. I, I always thought that that was one of those things where God, if you could have gone in like Psycho and not known what the twist was, mm. then it probably would have been a lot better. But it's still a a really uh, fantastic piece of work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any kind of like personal favourites of his? Uh, Scream's definitely up there. I, I also uh, like. I like the fact that he just kind of went through all of these different, uh, and in some ways defined these different waves of of horror throughout. You know, his his career. Obviously, you have like Last House on the Left, which was about as kind of extreme a grindhouse movie as you would like to find in 1973, and was this. Um, slightly incoherent and very angry film about the state of the nation as well as being just a horror film so he always had and you know obviously it, it uh, alluded to Bergman's The Virgin Spring so he's always someone who had a lot on his mind uh, mm. and then you know uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street is not great but it's obviously iconic and you know I think came to define uh, a particular style of 80s horror uh, and New Nightmare I think is is uh, really underrated when he returned to the franchise and made it super meta Mm. Um, I think that he's he's someone who has a a good to great film in uh, each of those decades. Yeah, and um, the whole thing about Scream is um, it probably shouldn't have kind of worked quite as well as it did, and mm. it probably shouldn't have worked four times um, or maybe three times. But yeah, kind of my nephew, I, he was visiting the other day, um, and he's just started to do film studies at A level. And I asked him, kind of, what was the first? What do you do in film studies? Like, what was film studies one hundred and one? And he said they watched the uh, the opening to Scream. And firstly, I thought that's an eighteen, that's inappropriate. <laughs> um, and then secondly, I thought, well, well, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, because obviously it's both a really good example of horror filmmaking and a knowing deconstruction of it, mm. and a a way of uh, showing how you can really mess with audience expectations by going in a certain direction and then suddenly veering off in a new way that they wouldn't expect yeah yeah so yeah Wes Craven you shall be kind of sadly missed and uh, there'll probably be a lot of people kind of sleep slightly easier uh, <laughs> knowing you're not going to kind of uh, scare us with anything else you creepy old bastard so yeah that's the news this week um, we're going to talk about something that I can't quite believe we have never talked about before in the three and a bit years that we've been going and the hundred odd episodes that we've recorded we mention it a lot but we've never actually dedicated a whole episode to Star Wars have we Ed? No I was going to say that we, we've we I think we've mentioned it enough that if someone wants to comb for our archive <laughs> and edit together all of our mentions of Star Wars you can probably get a full episode in the same way that you can reconstruct Citizen Kane from references to it in The Simpsons 
Yes, yes. Although it would probably be less interesting to do our one. Um, <laughs> it would be just... a lot more effort on the part of the uh, of the listener, I think. Yeah, it'd be like six hours of us ragging on the sequels, on the prequels, sorry. Uh, sequels and prequels. Uh, they managed to do both of those things. That's if they're listening to episodes in the future. Mm, yeah, yeah. What's your personal relationship with Star Wars, Ed? Do you have one? Uh, yeah, I, I first watched Star Wars, any of the Star Wars films, I think probably about 95 or 96, and I think I had the worst start to experiencing Star Wars in terms of the narrative you could have, which is that uh, my dad was watching Return of the Jedi on TV, and I walked in and said, oh, what's this? And I walked in at exactly the scene where uh, the Emperor is electrocuting Luke and Vader is deciding whether to save him. And I asked my dad, what's going on? He says, well, he's his dad. And mm. so it's like the first two five minutes of Star Wars, I knew basically all of the big twists. And how it ended. Yeah, and how it ended. <laughs> and, but I, obviously I saw enough of it and thought that, you know, that guy's suit was really cool and the people were shooting lightning from their hands. I should probably investigate this further. Mm. Uh, and, and from there, you know, then a few years later, you get the re-releases in 1997, which I went to watch with my dad and, you know, watched all uh, three of them in the theatre, watched them a lot on video, was deeply disappointed by the prequels, but was then kind of got involved in all the expanded universe stuff. So I think there's a good five or six years of my life there where I was really super obsessed with Star Wars. And now mm. I still like it a lot, but I, it definitely feels like, I don't know, like I'm on methadone or something. <laughs> yeah. For me, uh, I watched them a lot as a kid. I'm kind of slightly too young to have seen them in the in the cinema. I did see Caravan of Courage in the cinema, um, which is, I think I might have been one of the only people who did. Was that the Ewok movie? It was, certainly was. Um wow. And I remember asking to take be taken to it for my birthday, and even being maybe I must have been like five or something, just saying this is fucking wank. Uh, <laughs> you can't take me to see this. This is bullshit. Um, oh, probably not in those words, but I, you know, I remember being uh, displeased. Things yeah, like that. Uh, I, I, whenever I think of things like that, I always feel sorry for my parents because I think you really must have loved me if you were willing to take me to the fucking Pokemon movie or something. Mm, <laughs> it's just yeah. kind of like where well, you think this was. I really put you through some horrible times. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I kind of... Then I had them on video taped off the TV. A lot I've mentioned before that I watched Star Wars for many years without ever actually seeing the beginning. Uh, the first three or four minutes were missing from the, uh, the the video we had. And I kind of just really liked Star Wars because I'd seen them so many times and um, wasn't really that fussed about anything beyond the, the films. But when the prequels came out, I got very excited. I got very swept up in the hysteria. And I will say... I got way too swept up in this theory and I kind of got hugely excited for it and ended up seeing Phantom Menace in a near empty cinema three weeks after it came out and just being generally kind of bored mm. by the whole affair but kind of was like maybe I need to see that again and then saw it again on video and I was like I don't need to see that again and then but subsequently I've kind of seen the Phantom Menace about 20 times which for reasons I'll go into in a, in a second but then I didn't even see uh, episode two at the cinema and uh, episode three was the very first film I put on a love film list when I signed up for it because I'm like I'm not fucking paying for this shit uh, <laughs> I'm getting this on a free trial and I kind of it says a lot that of just how excited I was for the first prequel but then the fact that I couldn't even be bothered to go to the cinema to see two and I couldn't even be bothered to rent three kind of says it a lot but I have since then rewatched all the prequels quite a few times and um I am staggered that they get away with as much as they do 
Uh, and they, they do so on the basis of their Star Wars and people have affection for Star Wars because uh, viewed objectively, those films are absolute tripe. And I can't quite believe that we're not, we don't talk about them. We don't, we talk about them as being uh, disappointing or underwhelming and not um, some of the worst mainstream films released in their respective decades. Yeah, I think that it's interesting to consider how big of a deal they were at the time and then I'd say for about five or six years after uh, Revenge of the Sith came out I think people had more or less shut up about them but it was kind of like uh, kind of like a cultural wound that got it seems to have got been reopened with the Red Letter Media videos mm-hmm. where it seemed to be a case that everyone walked away from these things they were all a lot of people were disappointed a lot of people liked them um apparently uh also i've been told or ha- have kind of been screened at by people on the internet about it you know there's there's people out there who grew up with them and, and enjoy them and these people perplex me and i think mm. should be studied um but then the, the red letter media videos came out and suddenly it, it definitely felt like suddenly all these people were like yes that was what was wrong with it and mm. uh, kind of uh, really uh, since then i feel like discussion about them has raged kind of incessantly mm. one of the reasons kind of asked about uh, our kind of personal relationships to Star Wars is because two days ago it was Force Friday which uh, is was actually a thing that happened in which um, the marketing machine kicked into gear for the upcoming uh, episode 7 which is out in December I believe and they decided to release all of the, the merchandise or a huge kind of selection of merchandise all on one day and make a huge event of it obviously um, Lucasfilm has been bought out by Disney um, and now they own it and they're going to grind it into the ground uh, as much as they can to make as much money of it uh, out of it as they can because they're Disney but it got me thinking that it's only Star Wars that could do this mm. it's only Star Wars that could have a whole day dedicated to toys, essentially, and stuff that will be knowingly regarded as tat in quite a few years, but also some quite cool stuff like the drone Millennium Falcon, which is pretty baller. But, you know, we had on 18-hour continuous live stream unboxing videos uh, on YouTube, and I was just like, this is kind of nuts, but it's because it's Star Wars and people feel very strongly about it and people feel very strongly about Star Trek or Harry Potter or other things but not quite as they do about Star Wars yeah I think it's it's interesting to consider kind of how gargantuan a cultural artifact Star Wars is because you're right like there are there are things like the Harry Potter series and, and Star Trek which are popular but they're popular in a very kind of finite way. Mm. Uh, they they don't really sustain much outside of their fandom. Whereas Star Wars has, through its the films itself, through the expanded universe, through the countless marketed uh, properties that have that have come out, like you know TV spin-offs, video games, animated series, uh, like hundreds upon hundreds of comics and book and and novels and things like that it has become this kind of thing that is almost i think if you were to try and dedicate yourself to reading or experiencing every bit of star wars related ephemera it would take so long and i don't think there are many other things in pop culture um except for like 
the combined works of Disney or something mm. that have that kind of that scale. Mm. Good that you didn't say the word depth there, because I'm pretty sure there's quite not not that much depth in there. But you know, <laughs> it, like you say, there has uh, been a lot made, and uh, kind of it's the de- the level of detail is, is kind of absurd. But there's something that kind of got me thinking. This Force Friday thing is kind of very easy to roll your eyes at, and uh, in in many respects, specifically when I saw the thing about the 18 hour unboxing event, I kind of was just like, oh, Jesus. But like, I've kind of slightly kind of mellowed a bit on how I think about film marketing. And I want to kind of divert off the, the path for a second in that, like, over here, when Inside Out came out, they used the characters from the film quite heavily on adverts for Sky like digiboxes and broadband packages it was like completely inappropriate in the sense that like you'd have like Joy from the film next to a digibox and it says you know get a new 12 month trial or whatever now Inside Out's not on Sky there's literally no connection between those two things at all (laughs) it was just there and it was everywhere it was ubiquitous for for kind of six weeks to, to kind of eight weeks before the film came out and there was a lot of people on Twitter saying, oh, this makes me feel ill. This makes me feel ill. It's disgusting. And in a way, it kind of is. But like, there's two things that like I want to talk about that kind of have kind of changed my opinion on why I don't think that is disgusting. Which is, A, the people who made Inside Out aren't writing the script and then thinking, oh, I'll tell you what, guys, we could really advertise Sky Broadband with this shit. This is amazing. <laughs> because that's not how it works. These guys make a film and the people who own the film you know, monetize it and commercialize it any way they can. And secondly, we live in a bit of an echo chamber, especially if you're active on Twitter or active on any kind of social media um, and you uh, kind of like the sound of your own voice. Uh, it's very easy to say that it's disgusting that Inside Out is being kind of plugged on skyboxes because we all know what Inside Out is because we're film fans and kind of we probably knew about Inside Out three or four years ago um, and we've kind of followed its development all that time we're fans of Pixar fans of the people involved we know who the directors are whatever but like 99% of the people who watch that film don't have a fucking clue you know that that film's coming out and whatever a studio can do to make people actually aware of the fact that a film like that exists to make them and their family go and watch it of course they're going to do like I spoke to someone who's got like two young children about three weeks before Inside Out came out and said are you excited about Inside Out and they were all like what's Inside Out Hmm. and it's because people don't thumb over the the trades in the way that kind of film fans do so of course film fans are going to find it despicable but like how else are you going to get people to like watch your movie you're not put it on like the, all the film shows that are on British television at five past one in the morning on a Wednesday. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and and also uh, this is kind of a, a bigger topic, but the the intersection of art and commerce in cinema has been there since the beginning. You know, mm. since people realised, oh, there's money in this. You know, it's not just uh, something where you can, you know, film a train and show it at an expo or something. You know, it's not, there, there there is actual huge amounts of money to be made in in making these films and selling them to a broad audience Mm. and there's not for me there's not a substantive difference between that between using characters from a film to advertise other products such as over here where i'm not sure if it was quite as um overwhelming but in the uk but in the us at least the marketing for minions was Mm -hmm. incessant yeah Uh, and the minions themselves were advertising pretty much everything you know they were a real kind of crusty the clown kind of figures that were just 
you know, put on every conceivable product. Um, not quite to the extent of uh, faulty pregnancy tests, but not mm. not sure, of the, not too far off that. Mm. Um, and you know, to me, there's not a huge amount of difference between that putting the face of those on it and what movie stars do in going on talk shows because mm-hmm. it's all part of the same game and uh, admittedly there there's a little more of a personal quality to it because the, the star is there and if they're sitting there talking to you know Jimmy Fallon or whatever or they're, they're uh, playing some stupid game or something uh, there's a kind of a personal touch to it but it's still all part of the same game and I think that the, the thing with uh, marketing directly or sponsored products is it's a little more open about the game that they have to play to get people to know that the film exists and to go and watch it because if people don't watch it and don't pay for it then you know people don't get to make more films mm. yeah absolutely and it is a bit kind of uh, uh, shrill the marketing sometimes and you know that's a whole other argument about whether uh, the kind of techniques they use are appropriate or whatever but like just understanding I can't believe it's taken me kind of so long to understand the why rather than the how and I think as you kind of listen to other people outside of your own circle you kind of realise that oh yeah of course you kind of don't know what that is because you don't but you've got a life (laughs) you don't spend all your time reading about these things um, or kind of talking about them to uh, kind of strange people on the internet yeah anyway that's a kind of other point but like that's kind of where Force Friday's gone Um, and as a result we've had Force Friday and now we kind of know next to nothing about the film um, but people are poring over the details of like descriptions of toys that they bought and seeing if they can kind of glean some kind of minor kind of plot detail out of it uh, for episode 7 and it's kind of nuts uh, the fervour of uh, of Star Wars fans and I'm kind of enjoying it because like I'm excited about the new movie um, but I'm also kind of like freaked out a little by it that people kind of are this excited about it and I'm kind of thinking if you offered all these people who kind of run there's loads of them as well I've, I've checked loads of these websites that are kind of like breaking news every day we've seen this toy uh, there's a genuine story this week we've seen the back of uh, Kylo Ren's helmet what does it tell us about the new film genuine title of a, of a news article this week um, I thought if you offered the people who run those websites and the people who kind of patronise those websites the chance to see an unfinished rough cut of the film would they take it just to see it now like what are you opting with do they have to kill someone is it a saw kind of situation they would have to kill themselves <laughs> they wouldn't be able to tell anyone about it on the internet and I think that that would probably dissuade them from doing so because I think a lot of this is about oh I know this uh, this is my source from the set which mm. just turns out to be a rumour I think that's like the whole Star Wars this new episode 7 stuff has kind of brought out the worst of the internet in that sense hasn't it yes that is definitely the case the uh, non-news industry of uh, of film reporting has gone into overdrive and uh, it certainly seems to have uh, kept a lot of terrible websites in business for another year mm, yeah yeah um, you mentioned earlier like the expanded universe which is kind of for all those who don't know all the kind of supplementary books that spin off the three films I said three films you're right uh, it's not a mistake and kind of explore other characters and kind of settings and stuff that's all been kind of changed hasn't it because since Disney took over they did something quite radical which upset a lot of people but then excited quite a few other people and what they did was they took all of the stuff that was not any of the films any of the TV shows of which I refer to they are the Clone Wars animated TV show and Rebels and anything that wasn't any of those things they 
rebranded as Legends and uh, is now not to be considered canon, which upset a lot of people. But then at the same time, everyone was like, well, what does that mean? And Disney and Lucasfilm said, well, it means that absolutely everything we make from now on, whether it's a video game, whether it's a novel, whether it's a comic, anything, that is now going to be canon. Which is kind of exciting, for if, you, if you're that way inclined. But also, like, that's a whole lot of wasted effort that people have spent doing that stuff. Yeah, essentially what it does is it turns something that was barely above fan fiction into literal fan fiction, mm. in a sense. Because uh, I read a lot of the uh, of the Expanded Universe stuff when I was a kid, as I mentioned earlier, and I would say not a lot of it is very good. Mm. Uh, there's some interesting characters in there, such as uh, Mara Jade, who ended up becoming Luke Skywalker's wife, who's kind of a, a, a hitherto unmentioned assistant to the Emperor, who ends up going on a crusade against Luke and then realising that he's actually a nice guy and all this sort of stuff. So there's like there's interesting characters, but there's also just a lot of rehashed, cliched sci-fi stuff that happens to feature characters you know. Mm. And, you know, there's not a huge amount in, in them that I think really... Like, you look at that stuff and you think, God, they're going to really suffer from not including this character or this plot point. It's more just kind of, uh, you know, offering some... Some talented sci-fi authors a chance to kind of play in this particular sandbox and uh, you know flesh out a world which even I don't think George Lucas had completely figured out when he was making the films. They really did kind of go off on some wild tangents. Sometimes I sent you uh, a little something this week that I found that I couldn't believe existed, uh, which is a uh, short Star Wars comic called Into the Unknown. Um, and for those of you who don't know what it is, I'm going to describe it in a short paragraph. Um, and you tell me you don't want to read this. Um, it starts with Han and Chewie piloting the Millennium Falcon being chased by TIE fighters. They need to make the jump to hyperspace, but they can't because someone's broken. They do it anyway, and they have to say they're doing it blind. They don't know where they're going. They sit there and they come out of hyperspace away from the TIE fighters and approaching a big kind of planet that's kind of blue and green. And they're like, right, we need to uh, touch down there. Maybe we can repair the ship. They touch down. They can't find any spaceports or anything. They go out exploring. They get attacked by American Indians. Uh, and uh, Han Solo is killed uh, with an arrow. Uh, and Chewbacca kills all but one of the tribesmen. And the uh, one that survives runs off calling uh, Chewbacca Sasquatch. Uh, <laughs> and then the story winds on through time. And uh, Chewbacca has become Bigfoot. And some Native American tribesmen are leading someone through the woods uh, to try and find uh, Bigfoot. Uh, but it's Indiana Jones who discovers the body of Han Solo in the Millennium Falcon cockpit. That does sound uh, amazing. I think it, it kind of gets to the thing that was quite fun about the Expanded Universe stuff, which is that uh, no one seemed to be steering the ship. Like There wasn't a sense that... Obviously, uh, they someone had to commission that and say, yeah, that was fine, but they seem to give people a lot of leeway to get a bit weird with it. Mm. Uh, one of my favourite uh, bits of Expanded Universe stuff was from a short story collection called Tales from Jabba's Palace, which was basically just a series of short stories about characters hanging around in Jabba's Palace. And one of my favourites, because it was nuts, completely crazy, was about Bib Fortuna, the... Uh, guy with the tentacle head the uh i believe that's a twi'lek um the race and his uh, official position in java's palace he is major dormo 
which nice. is the uh, the translator slash administrator for the hut. So Gary on it. Yes, that, that is all. Uh, that is all accurate. <laughs> and uh, he uh, in this this short story, uh, it talks about how he actually wants to kill Jabba and replace him, and it also goes into detail explaining that the palace itself is a monastery for this order of monks uh, who are not monks in the sense they wear robes they are monks in a religious order whose kind of highest mode of belief is that they remove their brains and have them put into these kind of electronic spider bodies and you see one scuttling <laughs> around you see one scuttling around in the beginning of uh, Return of the Jedi when I believe R2 and C-3PO enter Jabba's palace and the uh, story ends with Bib Fortuna surviving the uh, destruction of Jabba's barge making his way back to the palace Mm-hmm. I believe getting knocked unconscious and then waking up to discover that these monks have made good on a deal they had with him before where uh, he agreed that a certain, I think he agreed they agreed that, he, that uh, Jabba could use their palace if when Jabba died Bib Fortuna would become part of their order or something so he wakes up to discover his brain has been removed and put into the body of one of these monk bo- these kind of spider things and it is crazy it's, it's an <laughs> insane story that has no bearing on the kind of broader mythos of Star Wars. It's just a case of someone looking at Return of the Jedi and going, what the hell is that thing walking around in the background? I'll invent the story for it. <laughs> but taking it in a direction that is uh, completely nuts. <laughs> yeah. Well, those those crazy days are over, thanks to the uh, the stuffy suits at Lucasfilm slash Disney. Now it exists yeah. just on live journals. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's the, we can't erase it. It's all there. Um, and if if anyone wants to kind of like uh, disappear down the Star Wars rabbit hole, uh, I recommend uh, Wikipedia, which is a genuine website that contains literally every piece of information you'd want to know about the Star Wars universe, and probably some stuff uh, on that very tale that Ed has just spun. So kind of that's kind of the kind of expanded universe and and kind of like where that sits now and where it's going to sit in the future, in terms of the future of Star Wars in general. Kind of, where do you see it? Do you think that the the purchase of Disney puts it in a kind of safe pair of hands that are gonna that are gonna kind of, like I said earlier, run it into the ground uh, to the point that like we're gonna have blanket Star Wars now for 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 the rest of our lives? I mean, we're gonna get one film every year for the foreseeable future, or do you see it as you know a kind of a, a misstep that's gonna ruin the legacy of those films that we liked as children? It's it's going to be interesting to see how it changes over time because it seems to be that it has a chance to become kind of the science fiction version of the James Bond series and that it's something that sprang from uh, one man's head and then at a certain point that guy leaves it behind because either in the case of George Lucas he sold it in the case of Ian Fleming because he died mm. uh, and then other people kind of take it on and make it its own thing um, by in both cases removing the racism um, I assume. <laughs> I mean, we don't know how many ethnic stereotypes are going to be in The Force Awakens, but I'm guessing it's going to be uh, a few less than the Trade Federation guys in the, the prequels. Um, but that is essentially, that's the way that I see it, is that we're going to get to a point where uh, people who have, have never met George Lucas are going to be making all this stuff, which I think probably happens now. I, might, I don't imagine a lot of the Expanded Universe writers actually got to sit down with George Lucas and talk about their ideas. But, you know, it's, it's going to get gradually more removed and it's just going to become this kind of archetypal story that exists and people get to play around with it. Um, the, the interesting thing is, you know, whether or not people get tired of it because at the moment, desire for it seems to be insatiable, which 
Uh, I personally wouldn't have predicted 10 years ago after Return of Revenge of the Sith came out. Uh, I, I kind of thought, oh yeah, that's us done with it now. Um, and I don't know how long this further can last if it can sustain like another bad film or another couple of bad films in a row. Mm. Uh, but it would certainly be interesting to see if they can create this kind of self-sustaining marketing machine in the same way that they've done with Marvel or if uh, it will be a case where people watch this new one they either like it or hate it and then it just becomes instead of becoming this kind of cultural flashpoint that people argue about it just becomes another film series mm, yeah yeah I almost feel like after Revenge of the Sith everyone was like okay George you made your point <laughs> we, do, we don't like it but let's just forget about it and then move on. And it's really interesting the way that discussion of the prequels has kind of been whitewashed out of uh, of any kind of marketing or kind of stuff for the new film. We've talked before about how uh, and they showed the sizzle reel, the, the Comic-Con. It was all about practical effects and doing things, but they never once mentioned they were doing practical effects because in the prequels, everyone hated the CGI. It was just kind of, kind of implicit that that was what they meant because we all know that because that's the consensus that it was you know people didn't like it I think my worry about the future of Star Wars is that they're spending way too much time retreading old stuff mm. because it's what people know so obviously we got a new trilogy of films and you know you get really excited for those because it's going to be new Star Wars I mean obviously some of the old characters come back there's going to be you know bits and bobs that kind of go through all the films that tie it to the original trilogy and we'll kind of set up stuff for, for the trilogies and other films that are made in the future. But then when we talk about, oh, we're going to get a Boba Fett movie, we're going to get a Han Solo movie, uh, we're going to get an Obi-Wan Kenobi movie, it's just like, can we just not make some new films as opposed to having to just kind of, you know, reboot these old ones? Mm, yeah. Which, and and like the, the, the news about that, the, when, when someone said to me, they're going to make a fucking Han Solo film, uh, in which we're going to meet teenage Han Solo I was just like are you out of your fucking mind that sounds terrible that could be the worst thing of all time but then obviously they put Lord and Miller in charge and we know that those guys are the kings of making good films out of terrible ideas yeah I kind of I wonder if that was how it was sold to them it's like you know how you only make terrible ideas into great stuff <laughs> here is the worst idea we can give you and their eyes just kind of glistening and thinking yeah we have to do this like this is an even worse idea than the third Jump Street movie after we made a movie in which we've talked about how terrible it is to keep making sequels to Jump Street movies <laughs> mm. do, you um, think they, do you think they were like actually we want to make this Bib Fortuna film We're about <laughs> spider brains <laughs> yeah this is the one story that we feel needs to be <laughs> needs to be told in a cinematic medium um, for me the, the thing about the future of Star Wars is I'm looking forward to seeing which of the new cast kind of ends up falling into the same roles as the previous ones like who's going to be the Harrison Ford who just doesn't want people to talk about Star Wars with him at all. And I think <laughs> that's going to be Oscar Isaac. Um, of the the mooted kind of... Uh, they're not called anthology anymore, are they? They're called uh, a Star Wars story. Stories, yeah. Um, like something like Rogue One, I think that is kind of on the borderline in that they're telling a story that we've not been told before and so is actually kind of interesting and different as opposed to filling in the kind of historical backstory of these characters that we know, which was always something that in the expanded universe stuff I found a little bit tiring. You know, there mm -hmm. were a couple of series about young Han Solo and they were never that interesting because no matter what their adventures were, you were still just waiting 
for them to get to the point where okay now he's met Chewbacca and kind of explaining how he's you know so good at what he does and things like that and once those details are filled in there's not much really much nourishing about it besides that Mm. that's that's my worry is that like uh, I know a lot of people like Boba Fett but you know he's kind of an ancillary character who gets knocked into a fucking big hole in the sand by accident um, and then obviously they're kind of in the prequels and, and in the special editions they kind of try and bump his part up so he's kind of now some major player in the Star Wars um, uh, kind of canon as it were and There's I another... just hate the fact that he's going to crawl out of that pit and live there is a there is a good uh, on, so there is a good Boba Fett story in that same Jabba Palace collection explaining how he gets out of the Sarlacc um, which is actually the, the fact he gets out isn't that interesting it's just that you know he uses his jetpack and he just kind of jumps out but the best part about it is that he gets uh, picked up by a sand crawler who mistake him for a droid, uh, and then the sand crawler crashes back into the Sarlacc pit. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just this really stupid kind of slapstick ending to this uh, kind of very boring story of him escaping from the Sarlacc pit. I think I don't know who the person who wrote these tales from the Jabba's Palace is, but they should be definitely thrust in charge of of, of, of some of the new material. Yeah, because uh, uh, clearly they just went to the most deranged people and said, yeah, we've got 300 pages to fill. Can you just kind of knock together a 20-page story between the 15 of you? Mm. Well, we've got 300 pages to fill. Can you do it by 2 o'clock this afternoon, please? <laughs> um, and here's here's a bag of drugs. Uh, go for your life. Here's a bag um, of drugs, and here's just a kind of a list of character names. Just try and work <laughs> as many of them as possible. <laughs> well, I was working on this spider brain story anyway. I suppose <laughs> I could just change the names. Yeah, so I mean, I'm cautiously optimistic for um, episode seven. Um, obviously, like they're doing a lot of the things that will uh, entice uh, people like me back into it. Uh, people who were kind of, uh, kind of definitely put off by the sequels and didn't like a lot of the things that have happened to uh, Star Wars since we watched it as, as children. But that kind of brings me on to a separate point. Like a lot of the defenders of the prequels said. They're movies for children, and uh, Star Wars is, you know, the original um, trilogy is a movie, movies for children, um, and you enjoy them as children, and you're older, you're not enjoying them. I'm going to counter that by saying that the original trilogy, perhaps some of Return of the Jedi excluded, are films that children enjoyed, and the prequel trilogy are films aimed squarely at children that uh, are really confused in the sense that they're full of really boring stuff like trade negotiations. And really violent things like people being horribly burnt mm, and hacked up, yeah, and left to die. Yeah, so they're they're uh, for children in tone, but not really in terms of content. Mm, yeah, like there's nothing quite as like childish or puerile in the original trilogy than there is of like pretty much everything that Jar Jar Binks does. Mm, yeah, and there's also nothing as kind of dry as just the any time it goes to the Senate mm. and just it's people talking about uh, all these various negotiations and deals they have to make mm. it's weird that you said earlier about racism in, in the Star Wars and it's like a rare example of something that's got more racist as it's moved against the times mm. in that like you perhaps in the older films you think oh that's perhaps wouldn't get away with that now whereas like the, the kind of racial and sexual politics in the original um, trilogy are kind of pretty much on point but then now you look at it and you think wow Jesus that's 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 a bit much yeah it's like I, I can't imagine like even like young kids watching it have got to have seen the Trade Federation guys and just been like 
this feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Just these yeah. guys who are, you know, not that far removed from kind of Charlie Chan or something. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, this is very, or uh, the fact that Jar Jar Binks is very, very close to like Step and Fetch or something. You know, mm. there's there's not really uh, any defending that sort of stuff. It really just kind of makes you think that someone somewhere needs to have given George Lucas a kind of a sensitivity course. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's why he's he's been kind of largely absent from this now. Maybe that's what he's doing. Although I've got a theory that maybe he did write all of the expanded universe stuff, Spider Brain story included, <laughs> um, and they, or the expanded universe is just his rejected ideas. He's kind of rejected fever dreams for episodes. Uh, Kind of seven to to forty five or whatever. Well, it certainly is kind of when you look at his early drafts and things like that, and saying that Han Solo was going to be like a lizard man, and uh, that C three PO was going to be like a used car salesman. Like there were there were a lot of bad ideas that he had that never uh, came to fruition, or that somewhere some someone somewhere just kind of said to him, maybe rethink this. You know, another mm. draft, take another pass at this, and maybe yeah. get rid of the awfulness. You know, I think that. The, 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 in considering the future of Star Wars the trade-off seems to be that you'll probably get films that are less distinctive in that they're less drawn from one man's vision and his own memories of kind of like 1930s serials and reading lots of old uh, unreconstructed sci-fi movies sort of thing that the rabid puppy is probably like mm. um, or at two kind of cutty-cutter, less distinctive but uh, on average probably a little better film yeah yeah, that's a poster quote for you. On average, a little better. Ed Davis, four stars. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, what the future holds, uh, no one knows. It just is going to be unavoidable for quite a long time. I think I said last week or week before that, you know, as much as I love Star Wars, I'm I'm kind of finding this, like, a bit much now, given that there's still over three months to go. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to try and uh, cut myself off from it as much as possible. And I reached that point when I realised that there was a news story going around saying new footage of Star Wars released on official Instagram account. It's like, no, this is too far. Mm. <laughs> as and much as I, as exciting as it was to see John Boyega holding a star, a, a lightsaber, uh, that just is going a step too far for me. And I think I should now try and uh, avoid any more footage or information about it until the damn thing is in front of my eyes. Mm. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's Star Wars, everyone. Like I say, we'll kind of keep you uh, up to date with all the thrilling news about Kylo Ren's helmet and what the back of it teaches us uh, about the upcoming film. But until then, we'll do some recommends. Uh, and I'm going to recommend something Star Wars related because so I thought, you know, maybe it's appropriate. Um, like Ed said, there's a kind of a huge expanded universe out there. And I'm going to recommend some games because uh, I'm a big fan of tabletop games. And kind of in the last few years, a company called Fantasy Flight Games, who make excellent board games and tabletop games, uh, got hold of the Star Wars license. And they've not let us down and they've released several excellent games, um, ranging from uh, X-Wing, which is like a dogfighting game, uh, to some old school uh, kind of RPG games. And they're all worth checking out. So if you're that way inclined and you really want to get some mad pussy... Uh, become a Star Wars board gamer because wow I tell you what that is where it's at 
and I got like an RPG group together like me and some friends there's like six of us and we did like an old school RPG and we did one called uh, it's Edge of the Empire where you're kind of smugglers and bounty hunters and stuff and I always liked in traditional role playing games uh, everyone wants to be a hero they want to be the kind of like barbarian or like the mage or whatever in this the group that I've assembled uh, a kind of a, a just a really shoddy bunch of cowards <laughs> and thieves and basically they've kind of done a lot of hiding in cupboards uh, and a lot of kind of stealing other people's shit and they sold a lot of drugs as well <laughs> terrible people but it's fun nonetheless so I recommend uh, any of the Star Wars games that Fantasy Flight games make because they're jolly good what are you going to recommend it? Uh, I'm going to recommend two things one that is Star Wars related and one that is not the Star Wars related thing is Ex Machina because it features two of the key cast members mm. um, Donald Gleeson and Oscar Isaac and it's also sci-fi related and uh, it's a great fun well not fun well it is fun when uh, Oscar Isaac breaks out his moves but mm-hmm. it's a very uh, intelligently put together and uh, very kind of uh, engrossing and in places quite disturbing story about artificial intelligence and uh, misogyny in a way which is uh, really interesting to see explored and uh, it's it's really really great and the other thing is a, a TV series that has just ended uh, on the USA network over here called Mr. Robot starring mm. uh, Ray, Rami Malek most probably most famous for being in the night of the other museum films but also had a brief role in uh, short term 12 a couple of years ago uh, which is a thriller about a kind of awkward socially backwards and possibly a little bit crazy hacker who believes that he's involved in this kind of epic battle against uh, a kind of corporation and it's a really dark and intriguing examination of uh, different ideas of masculinity in modern America Uh, it's very it's got a very fun supporting role by Christian Slater who has had very mixed uh, fortunes trying to break into television in recent years and this seems the most uh, the best use of him and uh, it's just really really great compelling and uh, a hugely enjoyable show to watch Mm. interesting does his mixed fortunes include him playing himself in Archer? Uh, no, I think that was the turning point. I think that definitely uh, that definitely is him going turning the corner uh, from you know his brief run on the West Wing, where he was good, but they didn't really do much with the character and various you know sitcoms and stuff that they tried to make with him to him kind of settling in as a supporting role on this kind of dark, brooding techno thriller. Mm, yeah. I shall check that out. I've seen a lot of people talking about it this week, and now I know why. So, yeah, that's it this week. If you've enjoyed the show, then please find us and subscribe to us via the usual means iTunes, Stitcher, Smart Radio, and the one that Ed's going to tell you that I can never remember Player FM. That one. Uh, yeah, find our website, srspodcast.podbean.com. You can find links to the Twitter and Facebook and all that good stuff on there we'll be back next week with something else no less interesting than what we've just talked about but no more (laughs) we will give you literally (laughs) nothing more than we've just given you Uh, that is a promise but until then it is goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me goodbye from me